Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Jane Donahue. Today we take you to a talk hosted by the Camden Conference at the Camden Opera House with historian, writer, and political scientist Sergei Medvedev. The title of today's talk is Putin's World War III, Why War in Ukraine is War on the West. University of Maine political science professor James Warhola moderates. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time, and it will be archived on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to hear the program again at your convenience, and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Sergei Medvedev is a Russian-born author, historian, and political scientist. His 2020 book, The Return of the Russian Leviathan, investigates Russia's relapse into imperialism and militarism and was awarded the 2020 Pushkin House Russian Book Prize. In his most recent book, A War Made in Russia, Medvedev argues that Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine was motivated not only by Putin's political aspirations, but by Russia's history of authoritarianism and imperialism. Thank you for this introduction. Uh, now the uh, topic of my conversation is not so nice as my introduction, because we are uh, really in the middle of a very turbulent period in world history, and it's becoming ever more turbulent. And because also added to the war in Ukraine, uh, we now have uh, the terrible events going on in the Middle East. It's just the next act of the tragedy of the war, which has been going on for 75 years. But these two wars are obviously related. And uh, the atrocity which we have seen in the past two weeks in, uh, in Israel uh, would not have happened had it not been for the war in Ukraine. Because Putin, by starting the large-scale war, and make no mistake, of course, the war started uh, before this, before 2022, it's the, it's the war which originates in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and moved into East Ukraine. But by the large-scale invasion, by starting this very archaic war model after the 20th century, or even 19th century model, a war of territorial conquest, a kinetic war, a full-scale invasion with infantry and tank battles, he opened up a Pandora's box. And the world is increasingly insecure and we have seen just in recent months the opening of the old conflict in Karabakh with uh, Azerbaijan retaking Karabakh. We've seen now the uh, terrible episodes in the war in the Middle East, and we don't know what's next. What will happen with China and Taiwan? What will happen with Turkey and Kurdistan? Where Putin might strike next? Will it be Moldova? Will it be Georgia? Will it be NATO country Lithuania? the Suvalki corridor between Lithuania and Poland. The thing is, we don't know. So we're living through a very turbulent period, which was started off by this war, which started on 24th February, 2022. And uh, thanks for uh, bringing attention to the book, um, which uh, well, I'll be signing off after, after this session. Um, and I'd really like to contemplate on the title of the book. It's very important for me, A War Made in Russia, because I really want to stress that this is no accident in the war which had happened. It's not just a whim of Putin's, uh, of Putin's obsession uh, with Ukraine. 
he is really obsessed with the idea of Ukraine, of killing Ukraine, of uh, abolishing Ukraine, like Hitler wanted to abolish the Jews. Uh, Putin is in the same way obsessed with Ukrainian independence. It's not just the Russian post-imperial resentment. It's not the caprice of the Russian elite. But I would say that this war is an accomplished product of the entire Russian history, of the past 500 years of Russian history. It really comes as a very objective force. It could not have been avoided, the war, in many ways. You see, there was a Soviet breakup 30, almost uh, 35 years ago, well, 30, uh, 33 years ago, 32 years ago. And um, everyone was expecting some worst case scenarios because there was Yugoslavia was going on. We saw what was happening with the breakup of the socialist federations in Yugoslavia. And then, you know, at the time, terrible things were happening in Somalia, the Rwandic genocide was going on. And then the Soviet Union broke up rather peacefully. And we thought, what a blessing, how peacefully it was handled. Had we known then that it was a postponed violence and it struck 30 years later, so in a sense, this is a uh, belated consequence of the Soviet breakup. Something which was avoided in the 1990s happened in 2022, happened in the 2020s, and it's yet incomplete. So uh, I would say that uh, this whole war is a resolution of the several important periods of Russian history. Now, one of them is, of course, the period of Putin the period of Putinism. 2000, when he became president, to present day, uh, 2023, and we don't know. He may rule for another 10 years, for another 20 years. We, we don't know, like the medics work wonders. So, um, and also the cosmetologists work wonders, uh, looking, looking at Putin's buttocks-injected face. So he was making no secret of this war. I would say that Russia more or less openly started preparing for the war 15 years ago. Uh, he made, uh, even 16, he made this speech in Munich at the Munich Security Conference in 2007 in which he announced basically a war in the West and Russia's special rights for its sphere on its sphere of influence, the former Soviet Union. So uh, it wasn't duly noticed in the West. And indeed the West continued making peace with Russia and trading with Russia and investing in Russia and greeting Putin at the most important international fora and most importantly allowing Russia to corrupt the Western political elite. So we have traces of this all over the world. But, uh, you know, in 2008, Putin invaded Georgia. It went almost unpunished. In 2014, he annexed Crimea and invaded into East Ukraine and once again, there were some nominal sanctions, but Russia wasn't really punished back then. So he was moving towards this war. Russia was going through a period of rearmament, a military reform. Almost a trillion dollars was spent on the rearmament of the Russian army from that time. And uh, the world wouldn't notice because everyone was thinking of the peace dividend. Everyone was thinking about trading with Russia and the lucrative emerging market and the cheap and the accessible Russian oil. So this, is, uh, this war is really the culmination of Putinism, the period of Putin. But it's also, as I mentioned, it's also the culmination of the post-Soviet period, the period from 1991 to this day. As I mentioned, this is a delayed consequence of the breakup of the Soviet Union. Thirdly, it's also a culmination of the Soviet period, because the Soviet period hadn't really ended. The Soviet Union, in many ways, is still there, is still around uh, as, a, as a dream, 
as a political imagination, as a uh, theme park of Sovietness. You know, the entire Russian propaganda, the entire Russian population are really thrust back into their childhood, into the Soviet years. So the Soviet songs play on the, on the TV. From the early years of Putin, they were just all over the TV. The Soviet flag, this, the red flag, the Soviet rituals. So this is also back to the Soviet Union. It's a period of aggressive nostalgia in Russia these days. But it's also a culmination not only of the Soviet period of the 20th century, but the culmination of the Russian imperial history, of the period that Russia was Russian Empire. And this is from, um, well, okay, nominally, students of Russia will say that this is from 1721. That's for the first time that Russia announced itself to be empire. That's when Peter the Great ended the northern war with Sweden and for the first time signed the treaty as the emperor of Russia. But I would say that Russia really became empire from the time that it took Ukraine, that Ukraine joined Russia. And this is the middle of the 17th century, 1654. Because, and this is very important, Ukraine is the key to Russian power. Ukraine is the key to Russian empire. Zbigniew Brzezinski was speaking about this on many occasions, that without Ukraine, Russia cannot be an empire. And therefore, we have such bitterness and such resentment in the Russian elite these days, because losing Ukraine means losing the entire Russian imperial edifice, the entire foundation of Russian power. So, um, in this, so in this sense, uh, this is the war of the Russian imperial breakup. It's really, as a, thank you for this, for this quote, Russia is a very outdated empire. It's, it's an empire in an age when their empires no more, because all big empires, which we inherited from the age of modernity, they ended in the 20th century. The German, the Japanese, the British, the French, the Portuguese uh, empires, they all collapsed. And Russia is the only empire that stayed. It endured a semi-collapse, a collapse of sorts in 1917 was the Russian Revolution, and in 1991 was the breakup of the Soviet Union. But both times it resurrected. First time under Stalin in the 1930s and 40s, Stalin resurrected the Russian Empire and even grabbed more land and more territory than the Russian Empire ever had in Central Europe, in Eastern Europe. And then under Putin, in a smaller format, but Putin's uh, resurgence of the Russian Empire is like Stalin's resurgence of the Russian Empire in the middle of the 20th century. So, I would say that this war is the culmination of the Russian Imperial period. But we can look even deeper, and we can say that this war is a culmination of the pre-Imperial period of Russia, and this is the period of Muscovy, because Russia now, what we see now, is the classical old Muscovy of Ivan the Terrible of the 15th and the 16th centuries. And Putin has really recreated many medieval rituals in Russia. And some of the you know, Rus Russian most prolific and uh, prophetic writers, Vladimir Sorokin, uh, he has his famous novel, A Day of Life, A Day of Aprichnik. And these were like uh, the henchmen of evil Russian Tsar Ivan the Terrible from the 16th century, projected into the 21st century. And he wrote that 15 years ago, and now it suddenly became a reality. So Russia, once again, is Muscovy. It has been reduced, actually, losing Ukraine, it has been reduced to Muscovy. And we really see the Moscow power. And finally, this is also a culmination to the pre-Moscow period of Russian history, which is the Tartar period. Because probably some of you would know that Russia was part of the Golden Horde. 
before the Russian state emerged. It was the easternmost part of the empire of Chinggis Khan. And indeed, the very Russian statehood is the reification of the Golden Horde. The first Russian Tsars called themselves Khans, and they were serfs, they were serfs, they were vassals to the Mongol emperor. So indeed, Russia is the embodiment of the old Asian power. And what's happening these days is that Russia is coming back into Asia. Russia is becoming a nation country. That's really a pivotal and important civilizational turn happening before our very eyes. The end of the European period in the history of Russia. The period which was embodied by Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, which started with the construction of St. Petersburg from the beginning of the 18th century. And now Russia is turning its back on Europe and the West. The West is the big other for the Russia. The West is the enemy. Russia is going to Asia. Russia is now a junior partner of China. Russia's best allies these days are Iran and North Korea. Russia's ethnic balance is changing. And for instance, uh, every day, thousands of Central Asian migrants are getting Russian citizenship. That's you know, Putin's program of giving citizenship to five million, but there will be definitely more uh, Asian migrants in Russia. Because this is cheap labor force, and this is a very loyal political force. They all vote for Putin. So, uh, and eventually also looking at the demographic patterns among the, Islamic, among the Asian population of Russia, all demographers say that by 2050, Russia will be an Islamic country. This will be a country with an Islamic majority. So Russia has parted way with this war, Russia has parted ways with Europe and started its historical drift into Asia, back into Asia. We're seeing a nation power in the making if Russia is a power at all. So that's what I mean to say that this war is embedded in Russian history. Secondly, this war is firmly embedded in the Russian society. And this has been really an eye-opener for me. I really have to confess that although I've been studying Russian history and Russian society for the past quarter century, I have expected many things of my country. And yet I was astonished seeing at the ways in which Russia has embraced this war and uh, imagined this war and uh, normalized this war and romanticized this war, something which had happened in the past year and a half. That's really a shock even for me as a Russian. Because at the time I was giving this talk, it was on the 25th of February, the, really like the third day of the war, uh, 2022. I was still thinking that you know, it's like the end game for Putin at the time, that Putin had made a fatal mistake by invading into Ukraine, that you know, the Russian army would fail, and then that the Russian population would probably not tolerate this. There will be you know, thousands and thousands of dead bodies coming into Russia, and death notices coming to Russia's widows, and there would be sanctions, and the ruble would collapse, and, and so on and so forth. All of this happened, and Russia is still there, and Russia is really preparing for the long war and people are happy to die in Ukraine and to endure this war and to continue this war. So uh, I really have underestimated the country and uh, Putin's resolve and the uh, resources and the durability of the national economy, of the Russian society, of Russia as such, to be in the middle of the war. And this is really uh, an amazing discovery 
to see how the society has reorganized itself around this war, how the wives are sending off their husbands to fight in Ukraine, how the society has been transformed by the war money, because it's not just for patriotism that people go to this war. They go there to make a big earnings. Uh, Putin has invented, he has found a golden bullet. He has invented the mechanism to exchange Russian lives, especially from uh, the depressive regions of the, of the country, uh, for state payments. He had very smart economists at hand. For the past 20 years, they've been making strategic reserves in the country. They saved hundreds of billions of dollars in strategic reserves for the bad times. Now the bad times have come. Russia had lost immediately $300 billion in strategic reserves frozen in its accounts in the West. But you know the rest, uh, like half a trillion dollars, have stayed. And now this money are invested into the war and into the payments of the Russian, pop to the Russian population. Suddenly, the Russian province is getting the money it hadn't seen in life. For instance, uh, if somebody gets killed, eventually his family, his relatives, will get close to $100,000. This may not be an impressive sum in the United States, but you know, in Russia, it's, I don't know, it's like $100 million for the US. It's, it's really, it's something which can, well, 10 million maybe. It's something which can totally transform your life. You can buy a different life, you can move to a different region, you can pay off debt because you know, all people in this Transbaikal area in central Russia and all these depressive minus regions and factory towns, they're overcredited, they cannot pay, uh, you know, they normally, they would have, what are, a drinking husband who would uh, find, uh, you know, age 45, 40, three kids, no money to feed them on, credit, 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 no job, no opportunity, and drinking vodka and beating his wife every second night. That would be the normal pattern. And then suddenly there is a chance to exchange this man for $100,000. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating, it's really working like this. It works for hundreds of thousands of Russian households. The Russian province has suddenly seen the money it hadn't seen in history, ever. And there is a new economic cycle starting in Russia. Uh, a fellow economist um, living in the US, Vladislav uh, uh, Inazemtsev, has called it, in Russian, it's smirtanomika, necronomics, deathonomics of Putin. They're exchanging death for money. And life in Russia is really doesn't have such a value as here. Russian people, and like look in the Russian literature, look into the sociology, Russian people are exchanging their lives, um, wasting their lives much more easily, historically. The price of human life has been quite low in Russia because of Russian military history, because of, uh, you know, the risk, the risks uh, embedded in Russian life. So, uh, for instance, the 19th century, you look at the Russian literature from the 19th century, the duels uh, and, uh, you know, the card, the game of cards, um, like even the Russian nobility was risking everything they had very easily. Right? So uh, the price of human life in Russia is quite low. And now it's exchanged very easily for this, you know, minute glory uh, in uh, Ukraine uh, and uh, for, the, um, for the state payments in this deathonomics. So the Russian society and the Russian economy 
have accustomed to, they have adjusted to this war, uh, because uh, uh, economically Russia can sustain it, this war, despite, like, let's face it, Western sanctions are not working. They're nominal. After a year and a half, we can say this. Russia is still getting the technology at once, by proxies, by third countries, importing through Kazakhstan, through Armenia, whatever. And it's also selling its oil and gas to the, Western mar to the Eastern markets. It managed to reorient, and especially now with the oil price standing close to $100 these days, pff, Russia can continue this war for a long time. Because of, and now with the war in the Middle East, the oil prices will be even higher. So Russia will still be selling its oil and it will still have the money, the daily money for the war in Ukraine and for the payments to the Russian population. It's a self-supported mechanism. It can go on and on and on. The Russian elite is totally on board. In the past year and a half, there hasn't been any protest from any Russian oligarch. And this is also a surprise because we thought, oh, these are globalized people. They keep their yachts in Sardinia. They keep their real estate in Milan. And uh, you know, their wives give birth in Florida. And uh, the kids study in Oxford and so on. Yes, but they sacrificed this all for staying in Russia because they're scared to death. You cannot really opt out of the system. In, such, in Russian, we had a funny saying, how can you escape from a submarine? They are in a submarine. They are in a Kursk submarine, which is lying on the seabed. There is no escape from there. And uh, the recent execution of uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, Putin's close associate, and it was a really an exemplary execution, the way that his airplane was shot down two months ago, uh, when he was flying from St. Petersburg to Moscow. Uh, so this has taught the Russian elite a, le uh, a lesson. So there are remarkably no defectors, no dissenters. All these Russian oligarchs with their billions and billions of dollars of wealth are working for the war machine. They have reoriented into the war machine works. All the new economy, all the, you know, the Yandex, uh, the Sberbank, the new banks, uh, the new internet pl platforms, they have all been reoriented towards the war economy. And Russia can sustain it. Look, it's uh, only 5% of Russian GDP. Six. It's more in the Russian budget. It's about third, third of the Russian budget maybe 40%, but hey, the Soviet Union had 50 to 60% of its budget allocated to war. And still it survived. It went on like this for at least 15 years due to the high oil prices after 1973 oil crisis, until the drop in the oil prices in the mid-80s, which led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But at least as long as the current economic cycle continues, the Russian economy can survive. It can stay afloat. So what's happening is that war is a very beneficial mechanism for Putin. He can go on for years and years. He is interested in protracting this war. He doesn't want an end to this war. There's no end game in Ukraine. There are no end goals in Ukraine. We can't even see what would be a victory for Putin. It's just a stage in his ongoing war. A war is for him, um, he reaches several uh, goals with this war. First, of course, is consolidating his power. He now has the constitutional mechanism that allows him to rule at least, at least until 2042. Uh, he has changed the constitution. 
Uh, so he will be running next year. He will move the election by something close to 80%. The goal is having the 80% votes, and definitely he will get the 80% vote in the next year's election. And uh, which will start the next two uh, six-year terms for him uh, next, uh, in next year. So this is consolidating the power. But also this is uh, about transforming the Russian society. He has transformed society to a condition where I have a fellow uh, political scientist living in London, uh, in Italy mostly, Vladimir Pastuchov. Some of you might have heard his name. And we had an interview earlier this year, and he made a very good metaphor. Putin is like this cook. You know, there are some French recipes, and like you're cooking the broth for a long time, like for 12 hours, you make this consomme, this you know, very thick broth. You're boiling the meat on a low fire for 12 hours. And that's Putin, what this Putin is doing to Russia. He's just cooking the country on the low fire of war until the meat detaches from the bones. And it's already happening now. The country is already in the condition of a thick broth. He has really transformed the society. He transformed the elite. He found a national purpose. Look, war is Russia's national idea. We, we have to face it. We have to say this. Russia has been looking for the national idea for the past 30 years in the throes of the post-Soviet transition. Every Russian president, everyone, I even contributed to this. In the early years, I was working, uh, like we were writing papers for the presidential administration, still in late Gorbachev years for Yeltsin, and so on. What is Russia's national idea? Everyone, all newspapers were looking for Russia's national idea. And then comes Putin, and then it's bingo. It's war. And suddenly the whole country is taken, completely taken, uh, that's completely on board uh, with this war. Yes, I would, it would be unfair not to say about Russian dissenters, but they are not, they're very singular, they're very disjointed, disunited, and they're immediately repressed by the police. And as much moral value as their protest carries, it's not enough to change the country politically. These are just single dissenting voices. These are very brave people that now dare to speak up against the war. But um, unfortunately, they cannot change the overall discourse and the overall course of the country towards the war. So uh, uh, what would be the conclusion from this? Where does it lead me? The problem is that this war for Putin is not just a war with Ukraine. It's a war in the West. He's a revisionist. His idea is changing the world order more to the benefit of Russia. And uh, Ukraine is just a testing stone for the big overall war. And even if there were no war with Ukraine, it would be going on elsewhere. And even if this war ends in some end state, in some intermediate result, the war would still be going on. The war will be going on unless, as long as Putin is alive. That's his mode of existence, producing a warrior with the West. So, and this is a problem, because uh, the uh, war cannot be ended until the war in the West, until Putin is in the power, until Putin is in Kremlin, until Putin is alive. Most likely, this war will only end with Putin's life, when he is dead. And then a totally new set of scenarios will start. It's very difficult to predict whether it will be to the better or to the worse. 
maybe this war will outlive Putin. Maybe this system will outlive Putin. There will be Putinism without Putin. We don't know. Uh, the death of the leader in Russia, normally Russia is transformed through the death of the leader, as happened after the death of Brezhnev and Chernenko, as happened after the death of Stalin. But we also know that these changes are not lasting. Yes, Russia changed after the death of Stalin. There came Khrushchev. But if we look at it from a secular perspective, did really Soviet Union change this much after Khrushchev? There was a brief period of hope, 10 years, the so-called Ottipil, the thaw, when Russia opened up a little bit, invited the international festivals, and uh, released uh, you know, some of the, uh, well, released the prisoners from Gulag, what was important. But then the pressure on the dissidents started, and the dissidents started once again, and then Russia invaded uh, Hungary in 1956, and then invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, and there was a few years, just 10 years later, Russia invaded Afghanistan, killing two million Afghans in the process. So uh, it's, um, you know, the point is that the country did not change fundamentally. So uh, in order to end this war, and I'm writing about this uh, towards the end of my book, Russia has to undergo a complete transformation like Germany in 1945. So frankly, Russia, in order to end this war, to transform itself, and to, or to be transformed by external force, and to make it into the 21st century. Because Russia is not yet in the 21st century. It is somewhere in the 19th, or maybe in the 16th century. And uh, you know, there was a joke uh, about Putin uh, that he is the world's greatest statesman of the 19th century. Uh, and uh, that's very much true, because he has this retro politics, retro mentality. Entire Russia is now being thrown back in this uh, retrotopia, as Zygmunt Bauman calls it. It's reliving nine, the uh, Second World War. Now, talking about the Second World War, and that's what, uh, the, the, like the very last chapter of my book, it really has to be relived, but in a different way. Because, you know, the Second World War wasn't really finished. In the middle of the 20th century, the West the free world was opposed by two evil dictatorships. And only one of those dictatorships was defeated. And this is Hitler. And the second dictatorship survived, allied with the West, survived, transformed, and resurrected under Putin. So this is the unfinished job of 1945. The second dictatorship, which is Russia, has to be defeated in the same way as Hitler's dictatorship was defeated in 1945. And I think that Russia today, Putin, poses the same threat to the world, to the free world, as Hitler did in the 1940s. With the only difference, he has a nuclear weapon. He has a nuclear missile. So Putin these days, as a Hitler, was a nuclear missile. And unfortunately, I see very little realization of this fact in the Western capitals. Because it's a very hard idea to be thinking to the end. It requires a political action an alliance and an engagement which is unimaginable in today's world, let's face it. What I'm saying now is really an impossible project for today's Western leaders. And even back then, in the 1940s, it, was, it took a long time 
It took the Second World War. It took killing 80 million people in the Second World War. It took the extermination of Jews and the Holocaust. Okay, they learned about the Holocaust later. Before the Western powers allied came together and there was, you know, the great imagination of Churchill and Roosevelt uh, to get together and then, you know, to reach out to Stalin and uh, to agree to defeat Hitler. It was rather a historical exception that it all happened in 1945. And I'm not sure it will, the world will be able to do it once again in the 21st century. Because in order for the world to be secure, we need a complete transformation of Russia, deputinization, demilitarization, denuclearization, where the world cannot live peacefully with Russia's nuclear weapon, deimperialization and decolonization of Russia. I would even say the demoscovization of Russia, because the core of the evil is in Moscow, is in the Moscow Kremlin. It's a big country beyond Moscow. The power should be taken outside of Moscow, like it was taken outside of Berlin in Germany after 1945. So once again, I'm calling for a German solution to the Russia problem. But I know it's absolutely utopian thinking. I really, in realistic terms, I don't see this happening. I'm just now calling for uh, this you know, great vision, but I don't see how, what are the political force. So unfortunately, my forecast for the end of that will be, I will end with this. So, so my forecast for the coming years will be a protracted war, a protracted war in Ukraine, because also I think the United States do not want a quick end to the war. If they wanted, they would have done it. If Ukraine got enough weapons for the summer offensive, if it got the F-16s and the ATCAMs missiles uh, from the beginning of the war, it could be ended much, much sooner. But I think the United States are interested in protracting the war in order to weaken Russia and you know, to gradually uh, reduce Russia's military capacity in this huge meat grinder called the war in Ukraine. But not supplying Ukraine uh, a decisive enough advantage to win over Russia immediately. Because from what I see in the West is that people fear Ukraine's victory as much as they fear Russia's victory. Because then everyone doesn't know what will Putin do if he faces a defeat in Ukraine and whether he will reach out for the red button and the nuclear weapon. So people are fearing the Ukraine. So uh, uh, unfortunately, I think it will be going on for years and years. And there will be more and more regional conflicts produced by the war. So we are in a very different, in a very difficult period, a period of great trouble. And, but at least uh, we have to be aware that there's Ukraine, which is standing in the defense, not just of its own territory, but of the entire cause of liberty and the free world out there. So uh, at least I think I could end these remarks with uh, the call for solidarity with Ukraine and with the support of this country that is fighting for all of us here so that we can be assembled here in this peaceful auditorium uh, in the peaceful Maine. So it's, um, with these remarks I would end this and I'm really happy to listen to your questions. Um, hello, my name is Ludmila, I'm from Russia. So I was just wondering, I've always taken this war as, um, as a process to take as many votes as possible for the elections in 2024. So one of my favorite political scientists from Russia, Maxim Katz, he just recently mentioned that Putin decided to start the war just because he was losing the votes for the elections. And at the very beginning of the war, we saw a huge race of patriotism. So we actually saw like, people all over the country, they were ready to vote for Putin. 
But then it was kind of that nationalist politics and many minorities, including Tatar and Chuvash and many people from the state of Buryatia, now they're not ready to give any votes for Putin because he, he's conducting the very fascist politics in these states and he sends a lot of troops from the specific minority states. So um, do you think that the war is more likely to be over in 2024 once the elections is over just because, like, no? No. <laughs> All right. No, because, because Look, because, because we're not question. in America. You're sort of really, uh, elections are not about the votes. These <laughs> will be, uh, in uh, Russia, it doesn't really matter how you vote. Uh, and uh, actually the voting patterns are already predestined in Russia. You cannot really vote against Putin. The, the, it's organized in such a way. No, no, he would have won without this war. You don't need a war to win the election in Russia. And once again, it's one of these appearances, one of those absolutely fake institutions. When they say, we have elections in Russia, and people immediately say, oh, you know, he has to, to, to win the votes, so there will be different candidates. No, it's rubbish. Uh, the elections will be about, uh, uh, it's a plebiscite. And it's a plebiscite not about Putin, but about the war. And Putin wants a uh, convincing, a resounding approval of his war by the population. And he will get it in 2024. Uh, no, no, it will not be ended uh, with the election. It will just go on in a protracted stage. And uh, unfortunately, I think, um, you know, Putin, Russia has always, the one, in the wars which it won, Russia outlasted its opponents. It persevered. In the war was Napoleon. In the war was Hitler. So that's Putin's best hope. And it's actually a very well-calculated hope that he will outlast the West. Mm -hmm. Because he is an authoritarian leader and will always have a leading edge over the democracies. Because in democracies, uh, you're answerable to the population and people get tired from war. And, uh, you know, you change the leaders and the leaders change the policy. So, uh, and Putin is quite aware of the fact that already a year and a half of the war, the Western constituencies are getting tired from this war. Mm -hmm. And he's also waiting for the U.S. election in 2024. That's his best hope. The return of Trump, on, even if, doesn't, if Trump doesn't return, uh, the fallout of, you know, Trumpist rhetoric and this, you know, Ukraine fatigue, will be big for the, the US politics. So I think he believes that if you wait until, and like look what's happening in elections all over Europe, in Slovakia, a pro-Putin party has just won. And there will be one country after another. You know, Bulgaria is already pro-Putin. Serbia is already pro-Putin. And what I see happening in the Czech Republic, uh, there are more and more people and parties also. There's only maybe Poland and the Baltic states and Great Britain that stand firmly for Ukraine. All other European nations are very shaky, and it takes another electoral cycle for them, you know, to say enough of the war, enough of support to Ukraine. And Putin knows this all too well. And he also knows that, look, we're here within a crowd of roughly one billion people who think about this war in the terms which I have sort of described. Well, I don't know if many people support me in this, but I hope that, you know, most people in this audience share the same opinion of the war. But we are one billion. And there's seven billion people outside there who think very differently. If we had an Indian audience, if we had a Chinese audience, if we had a Latin American audience, if we had an Arab audience, they have a very different opinion of the war. What they really want is the US to be defeated. There's so much anti-Americanism in the world. And they see this war as a confrontation of Russia against the United States over some obscure Russian colony somewhere out there. 
and they would be happy to see the U.S. fail. So really, this war, and we really have to understand, it's, about, it's not about Russia and Ukraine. It's also about the United States. And it's about the future of the West and the future of the world order, which is now decided in Ukraine. Thank you very much. Yeah. I've been part of an organization that has been doing exchange with Russians, the youth of Russia and other countries around Europe and as far as Indonesia. And now that exchange is pretty much stopped with mm. Russians. And I want to know if you still see there a way to continue to build ties and friendly relations with young people in Russia from the people of Maine, mm. not involved with politics or big business, just the youth of this nation wanting to connect with the youth of that nation. And how can we have just people were continuing to relate positively with the Russians. Well, I totally understand and support your desire. But let's imagine once again, for me, the most instructive parallel is Germany in the 1940s. And you're asking me in 1942, Germany is such a nice country. How can we relate to the young German people? How can we build relationship with the young Germans and with uh, you know, the German businesses? Is there a future for us with the Germans? The answer is, I don't know. The answer is, uh, you have to defeat the current Russian power. You have to remodel Russia. Because do you want to engage the young people that are there under the regime? They would never be free in communicating with you. The change may occur in Russia, which happened uh, in the late 1980s, right? We may still be, we can be in Germany in 1942, but we can be also like, let's take a different template, in the Soviet Union in 1982. And everything looks very bleak in 1982, right? The Soviet Union is in Afghanistan. That's a high point of the Cold War. You know, nobody comes to Moscow Olympics. The Soviet Union boycotts the Los Angeles Olympics. The Soviet Union has just shot down the South Korean airliner. So it's bad, bad, bad. And who would have known that three years later, you know, the general secretary will die, that Gorbachev will come to power, there will be the new thinking, the perestroika, and like starting from roughly 1987, just five years down the road, the Soviet Union would open up and the country would mentally change completely in just five years. So yes, we can always hope that this will happen. But, you know, life has taught me not to live, to build your strategy on hope. Right, you can, um, it's, it sounds very nice, but uh, in reality, you, you, can, you can believe in certain things, but you can also have also to hedge the risks. And you cannot, so I can only advise uh, like investing, investing in hope that uh, there will be a different Russia in which you would relate to the young people. But uh, unfortunately, what I had seen in Russia in the past 10 years or 15, that the young generation, the new generation, is the Putin generation. That my generation was the last one which really harbored protest and opposition. We were the last of the Mogihans who saw the freedom in the 1990s, who went to the rallies and so on. And the young generation, uh, the TikTok generation, they're very career-oriented. Uh, those who stayed in Russia, they want to be in the career in the state corporations. And look, they've been born, the new generation, they've been born to reality where there has been sun in the sky and Putin in the Kremlin. They haven't seen anything else. They haven't seen any possibility for an opposition. So for them, it's normalcy. And uh, unfortunately, also looking at uh, our students, it was which was probably Russia's best university, High School of Economics. I'm also not up. Well, there's a certain 
proportion of students, for instance, you know, the students with whom I communicated, but actually most of them left. And uh, most of them are right now on PhDs in uh, various Western universities. Uh, the ones that studied uh, with me that were writing something, uh, dissertations, uh, doing master's degrees. Um, so, um, unfortunately, I don't have much hope uh, for Russia's new generation. But once again, once again, don't take my pessimism for granted. It's just, you know, my personal trait. Also remember that, uh, you know, we've seen, at least in 20th century, the country transforming itself miraculously twice. Between, let's say, 1953 and 1957, the death of Stalin and the first Moscow Youth Festival. The same people who were just weeping on the news uh, and just, you know, hysterically, like uh, North Koreans uh, these days on the news of the death of Stalin. There was mass, mass hysteria in uh, the streets of the Russian cities. People, there were like stampedes, people on Stalin's funeral. There were thousands of people dead. The people were so eager to see the body. And then the same people four years later, I just, uh, you know, stampede to greet the Westerners in the streets of Moscow. And the same happened between, let's say, 1983 and 1987. So things do change. Things do transform. Let's hope that this is possible. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we do have a question down here in the, in the uh, corner. Here, please. Hi. Your expectation that the war in Ukraine will go on for quite some time, I wonder what you think in that mid to longer range the Russian economy will be doing. I think it was John McCain who saw Russia as a gas station with an army. Can Russia persist as long as it finds enough customers for its petroleum at discounted prices? Or will the cumulative embargoes and Western constraints put enough pressure on that public reaction in Russia could become a problem for Putin? Well, uh, thanks. That's a good question. Well, a gas station was, mis was missiles, not just was the army, but it was nuclear missiles. Uh, that's, I think, what John McCain said. The point is that public reaction is like the elections. The public reaction is not a problem in Russia. And uh, Putin learned it, uh, knows it all too well, that Russian people are not a problem for the Kremlin. And they can endure and then can go on as long as necessary. It's like in North Korea, we could be asking a question, will ever, you know, the North Korean public reaction become a concern for the Kim dynasty? The answer is no. So the Russian people are famous at survival and they're yet far from any survival levels these days. Looking at what happened in the past year of the, and a half, the Russian economy has shown amazing resilience. The market structures which have been created, they have a very inventive and reorienting and the new situation of sanctions and the lacking, lacking banking mechanisms. And actually, uh, there's everyone coming from their series. There's more money in Moscow now these days than ever. Uh, so the uh, luxury car sales are up in Russia because all this, uh, you know, state reserves have been, uh, the lid has been taken off the state reserve, so the money have poured into the economy. Uh, the country is uh, awash in money these days. Well, of course, that's, uh, I mean, looking beyond, uh, looking like 10 and 10 years perspective, it's very hard to say. So, of course, there would be a cumulative effect on sanctions, but in the short run, uh, two to three years, maybe to five years, of what fellow economists say, like until the end of the 2020s, Russia still have uh, the 
this uh, resilience in the economy and uh, sufficient demand in the Asian markets. Um, so there are many ways to circumvent the oil sanctions. Uh, they're reloading oil in tankers, uh, so it's mixed with a different oil sold as non-Russian oil and gas maybe going to, to China. So it looks like um, the economy can still go on for another five to ten years. Uh, in the longer term, of course, it's very, it's very, it's very hard to predict. The economists couldn't even predict uh, from last year. They couldn't even predict the Russian. Uh economy from 2023. They couldn't even predict a year in advance. So um, uh, the, the short answer is uh, in the short to, to medium term, uh, yes, it can stay, it can sustain the war and the Russian population is not a problem. In the long term perspective, uh, the question is like, we don't know. It's very hard to predict the weather 10 days ahead. We can predict the weather for two, three days ahead. Uh, so it's like predicting the Russian economy 10 years ahead. It's like the same, the same problem. Um, yeah, we do have a question in the uh, back row there. Did Russia's, uh, did Russia's invasion of Ukraine set a precedent for other nations and their imperial ambitions? And also, how closely related are the consequences of the Ukraine war to the Ch uh, China-Taiwan situation? Thanks. No, that's a very good question, and uh, well, the answer is yes. Yes, I, I mentioned this in my presentation that Putin just lifted the lid of this uh, you know, high-pressure uh, container. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, there's a relation to the Middle East uh, conflict going on these days. Uh, we saw Azerbaijan uh, retake Karabakh. Uh, we obviously see China uh, very, uh, you know, with keen interest looking at the scenarios in Ukraine and uh, possibly entertaining the something, uh, the similar scenario for Taiwan. So exa exactly, I mean, uh, this has uh, emboldened uh, authoritarian and populist leaders uh, across the world. Uh, and uh, we're just waiting uh, for the next big conflict uh, to happen. So this war is really unraveling international institutions in the entire post-Cold War system of international relations and treaties. And we haven't even talked in this auditorium yet about the nuclear component, because also keep in mind that uh, the entire system of uh, nuclear arms control is unraveling before our very eyes. Russian state Duma has just denounced uh, the treaty uh, of uh, the ban on nuclear tests and Russia is going to resume nuclear testing in the Nova Zemlya uh, testing ground in the Arctic. And uh, it's, that's another big thing. So the point is that the world order, uh, which was created in the past 30 years, is really very rapidly unraveling. And the Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2024 has you know, costed a coup de grace, uh, the final blow uh, to this old world order. And uh, we really have to imagine some other mechanisms of control. Thank you. Yes, sir. And then you, ma'am. Thank you, Mr. Medvedev, for coming to speak with us today in Maine. Um, you had raised the potential prescription um, for the problem of uh, Russia and the interests of the free world um, for Russia to go uh, the way of Germany in 1945. Um, so I was curious if you felt that it was in the best interest for Russia and for the people of Russia um, to undergo the same sort of uh, westernization uh, process that uh, like West Germany and eventually the rest of Eastern Europe underwent following the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, it 
Could be. Well, I would really like now these days uh, to use the language we used back in the 90s. Because back then, westernization was seen as a uh, you know, positive scenario uh, of opening up liberalization, liberal westernization. Now we've been through the school of uh, like post-colonial language. So westernization is not necessarily seen as the best option in a post-colonial world. Uh, so no, um, and I wouldn't really like to apply any pattern. Uh, what, what I would definitely uh, like to have uh, for the people of uh, Russia, for the various people of Russia, including, you know, the people of other religion, of other race, uh, you know, there are people in the Caucasus, there are people in Chechnya. Probably westernization is not the best scenario for the people in Chechnya. Uh, and uh, uh, is to help the self-determination. Because really, Russian history of the past 500 years has been a history of colonization by Moscow. Uh, it's really a big country, a big and interesting country with a lot of diversity. But all this diversity has been exterminated by the huge colonial project of Moscow since the time of Ivan the Terrible. You cannot imagine this in the States, but you know, that's the central government making exemplary punishment expeditions against the rebellious states. And that's what he did against Pskov, against Novgorod, against whatever, Rizan, all the cities around Russia, you know, like killing half the people in the city, taking ransom. And uh, that has been the Russian history for the past 500 years. So if I wish any um, better future for this country, it's the future in which uh, the various uh, fragments of this country, uh, the various parts of this country will have the right of self-determination and to decide their own destiny. Maybe, you know, the far east of Russia would be better off allying with China, or the Kuril Islands will be better off as part of Japan, or Kaliningrad would uh, be happy, you know, being sort of an exclave, enclave inside the European Union, a special economic zone like Hong Kong or and, and in the old times. And, and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, they, they should be granted the right, the, the right of sole determination and then they will decide on whether westernization or easternization or whatever, some other third way is uh, the best way for them. Okay, thank you, Sergey. One final question here, down yeah, here. Yeah, and I had a question about what can the collective West do to have some influence on the outcome? And is it different for... North America and for European countries, how can we support the Ukrainians? How long can they stay uh, up against the Russian? How long can we all <laughs> um, wait for the outcome and what can we do for them? Well, that's a good question, thank you. And so I think <clears throat> really the core to success. Look, the, the, the future of Russia is divided in the battlefield in Ukraine. And in a way, um, and I think this is not a stretch, this is not an exaggeration. To a large extent, the future of the West is decided in the battlefield in Ukraine. Because if Ukraine fails, if the West fails in Ukraine, we will be in a much, much more dangerous and perilous world. Where even your security here in the United States will be, will be in jeopardy. So it's really in everyone's best interest to have Ukraine win decisively over Russia and for Russian military machine to be destroyed there. So I would say that's a very straightforward answer. More and more arms and support to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
if uh, the West had given, uh, if US gave uh, Ukraine, uh, I already mentioned that the F-16s from the early stages of the war, if Ukraine had launched long-range missiles to strike Russia inside Russia, inside 300-kilometer zone in Russia, in Rostov, elsewhere, we would see a very different course of the war and we'll be living in a very different 2023 than we are now. So what we're having now is also the results of the undecisiveness of the West and of the long you know, political and bureaucratic agreements and uh, which really, uh, Ukraine barely gets enough to survive from the West. It never gets enough to prevail. So just give enough arms to Ukraine so that it prevails over Russia. Give more support, more logistics, uh, more artillery shells. In, in really, much of the Western military industry has to be reoriented because all the military industries have been like too relaxed in the past decades after the end of the Cold War. Europe combined can barely produce a couple of million artillery rounds per year, whereas Ukraine needs something like close to 15 million artillery rounds per year. So it's decided very technically and logistically, let's put it this way. So I think this is the best way. And then the second thing, uh, and my advice to the Western politicians, would not cave in to Putin, not an inch to Putin, no diplomacy, no, uh, no conversation, no talking to Russia. He's a terrorist. He should be treated as a terrorist. And he understands only one language, and this is the language of force. This is the language of power. And uh, unfortunately, this is not yet the language that the West is speaking to Putin. Not France, not Germany, certainly. And uh, so, yeah, this would be the two pieces of advice uh, that I would give to the West, because once again, Ukraine uh, is just like a gallant warrior fighting uh, for the future of the whole world now. It's on its own, well supported by the West, but fighting on its own against uh, the evil empire, as Reagan said, but which is really the embodiment uh, of it is today's Putin's Russia. Thank you very much, uh, Professor. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today's program featured a discussion hosted by the Camden Conference at the Camden Opera House with historian, writer, and political scientist Sergei Medvedev. If you missed part of the program or want to listen again, you can also find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine, and Speaking in Maine is produced by me, Jane Donahue. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.